and welcome to this BJSM podcast where I'm particularly pleased to speak to James McCormack. Professor McCormack is at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and in Canada. And he's not your traditional sports medicine expert, but he actually knows a great deal about non-steroidal and inflammatory drugs and other pharmacological agents because that's been his training. He's a professor in the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences. And we're gonna to talk to him today about NSAIDs specifically, but also he's gonna challenge our thinking on evidence, what works, and he's going to share with us some great links that you'll enjoy in addition to this podcast. So I'm very excited to be with uh, James McCormack today. Welcome, James. I think, Karen, Ben, thanks for the invite. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And you're a host of a very popular series of podcasts. Um, before we launch into the inside story, tell us about the podcasts that you run and how listeners can get to them. Yeah, so uh, about five years ago, a family doc buddy of mine a guy named Mike Allen, who's a really, really evidence-based guy, we decided uh, to put together a podcast to, to help family, family physicians and pharmacists and pretty much anybody uh, think about how to use evidence. And uh, we created this, uh, it's called the Best Science Medicine Podcast or BS Medicine uh, Podcast. And our sort of, the, the byline that we have is BS without the BS and uh, one of the things that we've tried to do, and I'm sure you probably do it with your podcast, is to try to help uh, the, the listeners think about evidence. Because, you know, I've, I've been doing this, this sort of evidence evaluation for 25 years, and, and Kieran, I'm sure you know, it, it always seems that when you look in, into the evidence of certain things, they never seem to work nearly as well as they are sort of being proposed or being marketed. And I think NSAIDs are one of the most brilliant, brilliant examples of where, you know, um, we, we sort of got fooled by the whole concepts of them actually being anti-inflammatories. And when you actually look at the evidence, it, you know, the, it's actually hard to find any evidence that they, are, uh, that they improve you know, things like sports injuries or anything more than just regular painkillers. And so we do a whole bunch of examples and we do it every week. And uh, our podcast can be, uh, we can find it on iTunes or at therapeuticseducation.org. Fantastic. And we'll put that on our link as well. So tell us about use of insights. Uh, family doctor who works in sports medicine, sports medicine specialist, they might be thinking of prescribing NSAIDs to help a patient get over an ankle sprain that doesn't seem to be resolving as quickly as they'd like. What's the evidence for that? Yeah, well, so I, I mean, I've, I've looked at this evidence over and over and over again, and, and it seems to me that there is no evidence that, that NSAIDs in, in any way, shape or form improve the outcome of sort of acute sports injuries. They always seem to be... Uh, in fact, I don't know about you, Karen, I, I, I've been unable to find any evidence that they actually reduce swelling in, in sort of acute sports injuries. In all the studies that I've ever seen done where they look at either the, the, the size of the injury and so on, they've been unable to show any change in, uh, in inflammation. And really, when you, when you think about it, if, if in a sports injury, oftentimes you'll have some internal bleeding. And most of the NSAIDs that we have have an effect on platelets. And so the last thing you kind of want to... Uh, beyond when you have internal bleeding is something that doesn't allow your platelets to stick together. And so I, I don't think there's any definitive evidence one way or the other that they're worse than using uh, nothing. So if you look at that evidence overall, what do you conclude? So if, when I look at the evidence overall, it seems like for any sort of an acute sports injury, if you're looking for, uh, you're really not able to get the person back to activity any faster within, with any of the sort of oral agents you use. So you're really just using them for 
uh, for pain relief. So is, is it legitimate to use an anti-inflammatory or an anti-inflammatory agent like ibuprofen or naproxen? Absolutely. But you could probably get away easily just as well with using reasonable doses of acetaminophen or even just the topical NSAIDs. It's pretty, I think there's very good evidence for topical NSAIDs uh, that, that they provide equal pain relief as, as do any of the other products. And in fact, if you're really looking for the best sort of ov almost over-the-counter painkiller, the best evidence is to use a combination. And so if, uh, if, if for instance, in, in, a, in a sports injury, if it's really painful and you don't want to use a narcotic, the best evidence for using is to use a combination of, say, acetaminophen, uh, you know, 1,000 milligrams plus, you know, ibuprofen of 200 or 400 milligram. That's probably the best painkiller we have. But I think the most important message to get across about this is that, at least for acute sports injuries, we're not treating inflammation, we're treating pain. And if it's not painful, you probably don't need anything. Now, what about the area of nutrition? That's pretty controversial broadly. And uh, clearly exercise has a role in um, healthy body weight and people feeling good about themselves. Where do you see the evidence? Yeah, so, so the, the, the evidence for that, and, and, and one of the things that we've done over the years is look at the evidence, obviously, for different medical therapies for high blood pressure and cholesterol and all that sort of stuff. And at least in those areas, there's, there's, the studies have been you know, well, reasonably well done, and we, we have some reasonably good information. But what's, I find uh, the whole area of nutrition really, really interesting. One, it's very, very hard to do clinical trials in that area, as you can imagine. Um, because you know it's hard you can't ran, it's hard to randomize people to different areas but what I've found the whole area of nutrition wh whether it even have uh, has anything to do specifically with with sort of sports injuries but in general we, we know sort of very little and what's really becoming very very interesting I think over the last little while is for at least from a cardiovascular prevention um, uh, perspective it, it really has little to do with sort of things like BMI we now know uh, the evidence is, I think, overwhelming, in my opinion, that the, the best BMI from, from a cardiovascular perspective and, and, and an overall health perspective is probably around sort of 26, 27, which most people would consider overweight. And, you know, when we're looking at any sort of nutritional intake, the, the best available evidence we have for just overall nutrition is uh, the Mediterranean diet. It's, it's the only, uh, only evidence that I'm aware of uh, that from a uh, from a health perspective that's been looked at in in randomized controlled trials, and uh, you know, e but even when you look at the Mediterranean diet, the most recent Mediterranean diet trial that was done, it was published a couple of years ago, really only showed over about five years about a one percent, maybe two percent absolute difference in cardiovascular outcomes when you compared using a Mediterranean diet to uh, um, what they called a low fat diet. So the whole concept of, of what we should eat and all that sort of stuff is at best tricky and uh, you know and, and especially what you know the, the one of the most important things from a cardiovascular perspective is activity and I'm sure your listeners would definitely agree with that that the the evidence for activity being as uh, far more important uh, than you know things like statins and, and 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 all that sort of stuff and obviously not smoking and that's the best available evidence that we have, but boy, it is really hard uh, to figure out exactly what sort of nutritional components are the important part. Um, because you can imagine, you know, when I often give talks about this and, and you'll ask people, do you think broccoli is good for you? And, you know, the majority of people will put up their hands. And that's almost an impossible question to answer. You know, because could you imagine, you know, trying to do a study of randomizing people to broccoli or not? I don't, I don't know how, how well that would go across. Sure. I don't think I'd want to be in either arm of that study, James, but uh, 
seriously now. Um, there are issues about industry influences in medicine and your group has been big on that and you've made a lot of points about conflict of interest and professionals and experts not declaring conflicts of interest. Do you think that applies in the nutrition business as well? Oh, I don't. Th I think conflict of interest applies pretty much across, you know, everything that we do, whether it be in, in medicine or in any, any sort of marketing and so on. But it becomes very tricky. And I, I'd actually be interested in sort of your opinion on this a little bit. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of saying um, what, what you should do is declare your conflict of interest, because I think the declaration of conflict of interest is a very personal thing. And I don't mean from the person who's declaring it, but from the person who is listening. Um, I, I, I've heard people who have in, in quotation marks, major conflicts of interest give incredibly good presentations. And then I've heard the opposite, people who have no conflicts at all and give terrible or, or even you know, quite biased uh, presentations. So I, I think the, the most important thing, and uh, one of my other hats that I wear is uh, I used to sit on our UBC Ethics Committee. And so I think the main thing from whole conflict of interest is clear de declaration. And let the listener or the reader make up their own mind uh, about that. So that's kind of where I go with it because we're, the, the world is going to be filled with re uh, conflicts of interest on a regular basis. And one of the things that we very, very rarely talk about are professional conflicts of interest. We, we talk about monetary ones, but what about all of the professional conflicts of interest where you, know, we, you, you need to get publications to get promotion and tenure and all that sort of stuff? I think those are equally, uh, can equally influence all sorts of things. So the whole conflict of interest is a very tricky area. And I think people who just sort of go, well, you know, it's the drug industry or it's, uh, um, you know, they're the evildoers in this thing. I, I, I think they're missing the wrong, I think they're missing the boat on that. I think it's, it, it's, it's much more complex than that. And so I, my sort of default is I, I need to know where your conflicts of interest come from. And then I guess hopefully I can make some sort of judgment. And so just before we leave that conflict of interest issue, your colleague and friend Ray Moynihan has a controversial book and widely acknowledged book that not everyone on the BJSM listening side will know about called Selling Sickness. And it's relevant to us in sports medicine because if the drug data are overhyped and the drugs aren't as good as they claim to be, then many patients might consider exercise more strongly. So just share with our listeners the basic arguments that uh, Ray Moynihan makes and why selling sickness might be a good read. Yeah, I just, uh, interestingly enough, I just uh, spent some time with Ray back in, in Dartmouth in, in the United States where we where there's a conference called the Overdiagnosis Conference. And this was a conference all about, um, you know, the potential issues of overdiagnosis. And a lot of it, uh, the overdiagnosis is in, in relation to do we do, do do we do too much screening for people and a lot of it was around uh, sort of the concepts of of making otherwise well people uh, uh, unhealthy by telling them they have high blood pressure high cholesterol uh, or whether or not they have diabetes and one of the biggest problems is when you look at the evidence for that and why I think we are concerned about uh, sort of overdiagnosis is our treatments don't make a huge impact on that and so um, some of the messages that myself and Ray and, and Alan Castles, who also was a co-author on that book, have been trying to get out is, again, just be fully aware of the evidence and then you can make your own decision. Because I'm uh, even though this conference really pushed the whole concept of overdiagnosis and overtreatment, I think the definition of those things is the only definition that you can really have of overtreatment is if you really knew all the information 
and you would not take that therapy, but you were given it with the, 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 the thought that you would, that, that you should be on it, I think that's over-treatment. For instance, uh, you know, when you look at things like blood pressure, cholesterol, and glucose lowering, you know, the magnitude of the benefit uh, is that maybe one, maybe two percent of people who are treated for that over five years actually benefit, which means 98 or 99 percent don't. And so, at least in my experience with talking to people about uh, this whole concept of, of sort of uh, labeling people with these cholesterol and blood pressure things is that when you present them with the evidence, they, they, they think that we're sort of crazy that we treat a lot of these things. Now, obviously with really big numbers of high, you know, high blood pressure numbers, high glucose numbers and so on, there's clearly a benefit of therapy. There's no doubt about that. But where the, the big uh, issues are now coming into play are what do we do about people who have, you know, the unfortunate blood pressures of 141 over 91. And a really interesting fact that your listeners may or may not know about it, we now have in the last five years, 17 large randomized controlled trials looking at different therapies um, primarily drugs, but not just drugs, for to lower blood glucose, lower uh, blood pressure, and lower cholesterol. And all 17 of them have shown either no benefit or harm. So we, the one of the things that we've been doing over the last little while is trying to disseminate these sorts of messages out to the public. And one of the fun things that I've been doing is, is uh, taking popular music and rewriting some of the words and letting people know about, uh, and, and it helps people understand how to look at evidence. And so there's a couple of uh, uh, fun uh, videos that your listeners may be interested in uh, going to see, and they're all on a YouTube channel with, with my name associated with them. And there's a thing called Viva La Evidence, where we've taken a, a, a song by Coldplay and rechange the words, and it, and it it and basically in four minutes it explains exactly how we should be thinking about evidence and how to do uh, uh, things like evidence-based or, or critical appraisal. And then we've done a few other ones where we're trying to encourage the concepts of uh, something that's being put forth by Victor Montori called minimally disruptive medicine, where we we realize that medicine has some great uses, but boy, we, we make it very, very inconvenient for a lot of people by getting people to measure all sorts of things like regularly measuring their glucose and blood pressure and cholesterol. And when the evidence is quite clear that that really doesn't do anything but harm people. That is a great video Viva La Evidence and uh, it's had more than 40,000 views on YouTube already and people can just Google Viva La Evidence and uh, it comes up on top. So many of our listeners are teachers as well and teaching evidence-based practice and so that's a great introduction and I know quite a few people are using that in their course, right James? Yeah, no, exactly. And if people are interested in it, uh, you know, the, the, we got links to all that on our therapeuticseducation.org and if people are really interested in teaching evidence-based uh, uh, healthcare. Um, I, I put together an, a free iBook, so you can get it on if you got an iPad, and it's called "How to Do Critical, How to Critically Appraise an RCT in Ten Minutes." And so you can just Google that as well, because the myself and the colleagues that I work with 
our, our entire sort of careers are based on trying to get information out to family physicians, um, pharmacists, and pretty much anybody who will listen to us because uh, we, we find that when rather than following guidelines on a regular basis, uh, we find that when, when you empower uh, uh, physicians and, and, and other healthcare professionals with the evidence, the, the job of being a, uh, of being a healthcare provider becomes much more enjoyable because now you're actually using your brain, you're, you're working with the patients, you're using their values and preferences, which is one of the, one, a really, really important issue that we tend to not spend a lot of time on, especially when it comes to chronic disease management, is that we don't uh, allow patients to help, help we, we don't sort of work with patients to uh, get them to make the decisions that they would like to make. And the only way they can make decisions is, is to have a good idea of the evidence. And the only way they can have a good idea of the evidence is if our healthcare professionals have a reasonably good synopsis of it. That's a great summary, James, and you do a great job of that. So I'm conscious we're coming towards the end of uh, this game, as we think of in sports medicine, and uh, we're sort of. Are we, are, we in over are we in overtime yet? Well, we like to think it was the injury time. So oh, okay. thanks very much <laughs> for playing. Um, any other last thoughts before we we wrap it up? No, no. I just I just think it's it's so important for us as as healthcare professionals to have at least a basic grounding in the concepts uh, of, of evidence, and uh, you know a, a lot of what you you, you do in, in dissemination of information around the whole sports injury, uh, uh, sports sports injuries or just sports in general is so important because you know we, we're all of us are so involved in things like sports and nutrition and health and all that sort of stuff, and it really is is vital. I think that that we be at least somewhat familiar with the evidence and to tell you the truth if if uh if you and i can do it our listeners can do it so james that's a great summary and uh i'm feeling more and more convinced that the evidence for exercise is actually increasing and becoming more powerful the benefits of uh people having longevity and uh fitness being more important than fatness as you referred to before so all of us can learn from from the points you just made just to wrap it up um I wanted to touch on the John Ioannidis uh, paper where they really compared the benefits of exercise and the benefits of drugs in comparative conditions such as coronary artery disease, stroke prevention and diabetes. And they basically showed that the exercise was as good as the drugs in these big randomized trials. Yeah, no, and it's, I think the you know when you when you ever look at if you there's very, there's not a lot of head to head comparisons, but certainly but here's part of the problems is that medications don't do much anyway. So you're you know you're it's it's not hard to make yourself look better than medications. And I think you know e eating a healthy diet, whatever that may be, which would be the probably the best evidence that we have is for the Mediterranean diet, being physically active. But I but I I do want to. Uh, caution that people should be physically active doing things that they enjoy because you know we're, we're all dead at the end and so we better enjoy it and I think you know we, we also do need to be aware that uh, you know uh, there, there are there are concerns about you know people who do who over exercise and overuse injuries but you're, you're absolutely right the the evidence for things like activity and and uh, you know nutrition and, and so on are you know, really blow medications out of out of the water when you when you when you look from a from a health perspective, and uh, that's certainly a, a key message that we tr keep trying to get across. But it certainly better be activity that you enjoy, and it better be food that you enjoy. 
Fantastic, James. Uh, thanks a lot. Great to have you on the podcast. Really powerful messages there for our listeners. I'll refer listeners to our most popular podcast of all at the moment, the Tim Noakes one um, on nutrition. So that is a controversial area, as you said. Really encourage listeners to go to your site and look at the fantastic um, resources that you have there, including the iPad material on how to teach evidence-based practice, how to look at RCTs. The Coldplay video is a great hit. So just opening up resources for all the BJSM listeners, which uh, people love. Thanks for your time today, James. Thank you very much, and I appreciate it. And you're listening to Professor James McCormack, who's at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Renowned as really a mythbuster, and I'm sure you'll be fascinated from things you'll find on his site. Thanks for joining this BJSM podcast. Follow us on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ for links to many sports medicine resources. And our regular blog will go into detail on some of those issues as well. Have a great physically active day. Make all the day.